You can take your Bibles and find your way to Philippians. Again, if you're a guest, we welcome you. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And we hope that you have found a warm welcome from us at Highlands Baptist Church. We are a group of Christians. We are followers of Jesus who are seeking to help others follow Jesus. And that's who we are. We are not perfect followers of Christ, but we do follow a perfect Christ. And that is what gives our hearts encouragement and comfort and hope, especially even as we go through this Advent season together. Uh, we are, have just started a series through Paul's letter to Philippians, this short, joy-filled letter of his. This letter was written to real Christians who lived in the Roman colony of Philippi. And that's where the name of this letter comes from. Philippians, a letter written to Christians in the Roman colony of Philippi. Today we're going to be looking at the next section of chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And I had originally planned to preach this section in one sermon, but after studying through it, preparing to preach, I've chosen to preach this passage in two sermons. So there really are two big ideas found in this passage a one big idea nestled into another. And we're going to look at the one big idea this week and then, Lord willing, next Sunday, look at the other big idea. This section of Scripture is pri- primarily a prayer. You'll notice in verses 3 and 4, he's talking about prayer. I'll read the text aloud for us in just a moment. But I believe that this truth that God has for us in this prayer is going to encourage us and convict us. And we'll get to that actual prayer next week. I'm going to read these first 11 verses of Philippians 1, just so that we are aware of the context of what we have here. I'd encourage you to follow along silently in your own scripture, and it will be up here on screen, too. If a Bible intimidates you, you don't have a scripture, we would love for you to take a Bible with you. You can find one in a seat pocket nearby somewhere in front of you. So I'm going to read this aloud. I'd encourage you to follow along silently. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need your help. We know that you bring life to your people, to your church, through your word. You've spoken. Thank you for your word, that we can look into it this morning together as your people. Lord, give us help. Have mercy upon us. Give us spiritual eyes and ears to hear and to see your truth and to embrace it, hearts of faith and obedience. Change us, challenge us, convict us, 
Grant us faith and repentance where we need it. Lord, we know that in your presence there is fullness of joy and that you are working for our joy even in this text. So we ask that you would help us to trust and obey you, knowing that to do so is the path of joy in this life. And so, Lord, we pray that together as a church family, you would build us up in faith, that you would mature us more and more into the image of Christ, that we would better be able to display your glory in this world around us. In the name of Christ, we pray this. Amen. Well, these two key ideas found in this passage, you can summarize them with these words, partnership and love. Partnership and love. We're going to get to the love portion, Lord willing, next week, but this morning we're going to focus in on what Paul writes about partnership. If we were to put this sermon into a sentence or this section of scripture into a sentence, here's a stab at it. Gospel partnership is a source of Christian joy. Gospel partnership is a source of Christian joy, or it produces Christian joy. Are you looking for joy? Here we are in the Christmas season, in this holiday season. We've just come through Thanksgiving. Now we're headed into Christmas. We sing songs about joy. We sing songs about peace. Are you looking for joy and peace? Well, if you are, then listen up, because these verses have some great truth for us this morning. I love verses 3 and 4. Look at them. Paul says that every time he thinks about these Christians, he gives thanks to God, which prompts him then to engage in joyful prayer for these Christians. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, imagine, wouldn't you love to have someone like that in your life? They were to walk up to you this morning and to say, you know, when I was thinking about you this week, and whenever I remembered you, I was just so full of God-centered thankfulness for you that I couldn't help but pray for you with joy. I mean, just imagine how that would set your day up if you had that message in the morning, right? If you heard that as you walked in on a Sunday morning. I hope that you all will take that challenge, right? But why was Paul full of thankfulness for these people? Why is it that he had joy just kind of bursting out of his heart when he remembered them that prompted him to pray for these people with such thankfulness and joy? And the answer is found in verse 5. He says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that brings us to the key term for the sermon, partnership. That English word, partnership, is often used for the Greek term. Uh, the English word that's often used for that Greek term is the word we use, fellowship. Here it's translated partnership. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the word fellowship is a pretty big catch-all word for lots of Christian type of stuff, right? Christian type of activity. It's used to describe pretty much any time we as Christians get together. We call it a fellowship. What is often associated with those fellowships? You know? Food. Yep, some of you got it, right? Food. So you might be thinking, Paul is talking about having some great, you know, potlucks and uh, time sitting down together and eating together. Okay, yes. But um, we think of any time two of us get together as Christians and we chat and we talk and we call that a fellowship. But Paul had something more in mind here, something deeper, something greater. It's not wrong, our thought of that, but he had something more. And he actually defines what he has in mind here about partnership in verse 5. Do you see it there? He calls it a partnership, and then he keeps writing. He keeps describing it, a partnership in the gospel. So he has something very specific in mind as he is referencing this partnership 
It's not just sitting down and having a potluck. It's a partnership in the gospel that prompts him to have such thankfulness for these Christians and erupt in joyful prayer for them whenever he thinks about them. So, what does it mean then to have a partnership in the gospel? Well, the answer to that is found in the next phrase. Keep looking there. He says, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So it seems that Paul had some specific occasions in mind that he and his readers would have remembered as they read this letter and as he referenced their partnership in the gospel. He references some specific historical context from the first day until now. Well, what would he have been thinking? What would he have been calling to memory? And what would his readers have been remembering as they read this letter from him? Well, the answer to that is found in Acts 16 which is the historical record of how the church in Philippi began. And so I'm going to take us through a couple of snapshots from Acts 16 that I believe are laying behind Paul's words here in Philippians that describe why he had such thankfulness and joy in his heart for them when he thought about them. And I think what will happen as we review this quickly from Acts 16, I think we'll, we'll start to feel the effect of, yeah, like if, if you had lived that, if you had experienced that, you, like Paul, would have had thankfulness in your heart and would have erupted in joyful prayer for them every time you thought of them too. In Acts 16, we find that Paul and his ministry partner Silas arrived in Philippi, this Roman colony, and they went to the riverside, hoping to meet people that they could share the good news of Jesus with. And there they met a woman named Lydia. She was a religious person, right? She was a worshiper of God. She was religious, but she did not know God through Jesus. She was not saved from her sins in Christ. And in verse 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, traveling businesswoman, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So what we have here is, after her conversion, Lydia immediately wants to serve and to bless and to give to the advance of the gospel. And notice that it says, and she prevailed upon us. She was persistent in her offer. I mean, you could imagine she comes to faith in Christ. She's baptized her household. She looks at Paul and says, I want to serve. I've got space in my home. I would love to to serve you and to bless you. Would you please come and stay at my house? And you could imagine Paul trying to figure out, is this a genuine offer? Is she just being polite? She prevails upon them, finally convinces them to take her up on her offer and I believe that this memory is likely what came, one of the occasions that came to Paul's mind when he remembers the church in Philippi. I mean, they give the gospel, she hears it, she's convicted, she repents and believes in Christ, she professes that faith in Christ publicly through baptism, and immediately she is burdened to get involved in the gospel ministry. How can I get involved with you, Paul? How can I help advance this gospel that you are preaching? Please stay in my house. Let me serve you. Let me give to you. Let me feed you. Can you imagine? Every missionary. Imagine, we just prayed for the Curtises, right? Imagine if, as they're spreading the gospel in Congo, somebody comes to faith and immediately they jump into action on being partners with the gospel. Every missionary would love this to happen, right? Well, it wasn't the only instance of a partnership in the gospel that came to Paul's mind. Uh, Starting the church in Philippi was not easy. It was hard. Paul and Silas were arrested. They were beaten. They were imprisoned for preaching the good news of Jesus. They upset the income of some influential people in that colony. And they are in prison. They've been beaten. And what they're doing is, while in prison, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. And we're told in Acts 16 that the other prisoners were listening to them. 
And God sends an earthquake. It shakes the foundation of the prison. The doors of the prison are opened, Luke records, and everyone's chains are unfastened. And the jailer cries out in verse 30 of Acts 16, and and, uh, he cries out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. What does he do? And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here you have the jailer immediately. He comes to faith in Christ and what does he do? Come to my house. He brings them, he says he, he brought them up into his house and he sets food before them. He's giving them from his own possessions, from his own resources, again, serving and blessing them with Christian hospitality. He washed their wounds. Again, we have the brand new Christian convert. He immediately engages in what? Partnership in the gospel through these acts of Christian service and hospitality. Well, that partnership in the gospel continued. These are two occasions recorded for us in Acts, but there are some referenced in Philippians. You can, I had those texts of Acts on, on screen. You can flip over to Philippians 4 if you're still in Philippians, just a, a couple chapters later on in the book, where Paul is thanking these Christians for standing with him and financially supporting his gospel ministry. Another reason, uh, another explanation or example of what it means for these Christians to have been partners in the gospel with him. This is apparently something they did repeatedly. In Philippians 4, verse 15, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, right, when the gospel came there in, in, that, in that area of Greece, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. This is what it means for them to be partners in the gospel with him. They are following his ministry as he, as he continues to travel, and they're following him with financial gifts of support to make his, his ministry able to be done. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here we find that, okay, Paul is writing this letter in prison, and this church in Philippi sends a messenger to him, finds him, and brings him gifts and support, which is essential when he was very important for a Roman prisoner. If you did not have outside help as a, as a prisoner in Rome, uh, life was, was even worse than awful. Um, another example that we see of how they were partners in the gospel is found in chapter 1. You can flip back to chapter 1. In verse 7, he says he's, now he's going to defend why he feels so much affection for these Christians. And we'll talk about that affection and that love next week. But he says he's defending his, his affection for them, saying, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, verse 7, because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Well, how were they partakers with him in his imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. What is he referring to there of being partakers of grace? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 27 through 30 of chapter 1. Are you you sticking with me? I know we're jumping to passages. I hope you're seeing how all this is connected together. Here is how they were standing with him and partakers in grace in his imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. In verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, those are another 
words of being a partner in the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that's from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So what's happening there is we understand Paul is suffering for the gospel. He's imprisoned, he's been beaten, he, he's lost his freedom, and he is writing to these Christians, and when he thinks of them, he wants them to know that every time he thinks of them, he's full of thankfulness. And his heart erupts with joy in his prayer for them. Why? Because of their partnership in the gospel. And I've given you examples of what he would have remembered when the church was started in Philippi, but it was ongoing. They were chasing him around with support and helping and encouraging him and providing for him. And he also references here in verse 27 through 30 that they were also facing opponents of the gospel. Paul was not alone in that. They were also facing enemies of the gospel. People that, when he says, for Christ, it, it, was, it was appointed that you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for his sake. And so these Christians in Philippi were not just reading about Paul who was suffering, but they themselves had been suffering as faithful Christians in Philippi. And they had stood firm in the gospel and then encourages him. They were partakers then in grace in the hardships that he had gone through in their own context. They were engaged in the same kind of activity in their own context. That's another expression of their partnership in the gospel with Paul. So now, we put all this together. I hope we can begin to understand why Paul was so full of thankfulness when he thought of them. I mean, these people had been with him from the beginning, engaged as a partner in the gospel. They had been giving to him. They had been providing for him. They had been following in his ministry around as he traveled. Sometimes they were the only ministry, it sounds like, that were engaged in that type of faithful support and partnership. Giving financially, eagerly, voluntarily, giving of their resources to help him. And like Paul, they stood firm against the opponents of the gospel in their own context. I say, okay, great. Well, there's much for us to consider here in our context. Think about this. Based on this passage, we learn that we should think about our church family, you should think about your church family in the terms of a partnership in the gospel. That's how we should think about ourselves as a church family, a partnership in the gospel. So a question then is, do you think of your relationship with this church family like that, as a partnership in the gospel? See, there's a lot of things that go on on a Sunday in so-called church that are basically just kind of religious clubs, kind of mutual admiration societies. I'm not saying that's happening here. I'm saying that's just commonly what can be, what can be experienced at going to church. It doesn't mean that God's word is taught. It doesn't mean that God's word is authority. It doesn't mean that they're, we're engaged on mission together. It just means, hey, we get together. We have this kind of thing we're looking for in life, and we kind of give it all to one another through these spiritual things, and we go out and live our lives for the week. But what Paul describes here is something unique, a partnership in the gospel. Do you think of yourself as a marble in a box with other marbles? They kind of come together close and ricochet off each other one day a week, kind of scatter then, and occasionally then we kind of gather back into this box where we're kind of just marbles in a box, occasionally ricocheting off of each other. That's not a partnership. A partnership is understanding ourselves as servants and saints, as a people of grace and peace, the beginning, the opening of this letter. It helps us being partners in the gospel means we understand ourselves as members of the body of Christ, 
this sense of being organically connected with every other part and each member functioning together as a part of the whole, this partnership. When everything your body does, right, I mean, just, just holding a pen to write is a partnership between various fingers and muscles and you understand how that works and how God is wanting us as a church family to understand our identity in those terms. And Paul praised them and found thankfulness and joy, which is amazing to me. Because this guy is writing in prison. In Roman prison. I was trying to figure out, like, how would that compare to the classifications of prison that we have in our society? And I gave up on trying to figure that out. It's worse than what we have, okay? Dark cells chained to a, to a, uh, chained to a soldier, chained to a wall. Paul's praising them. He finds thankfulness in them. I mean, honestly, what would be required to give you thankfulness in prison? What would, what would produce joy in your heart while in prison in Rome? And what it was for Paul was this partnership in the gospel. So a question then is, how are you a partner in the gospel with this church family? Do you attend, sit, receive, and then leave? If that's you, God has something so much better for you than that. God wants his people to relate as partners in the gospel. Maybe the first step for you then is to become a church member because that really is the gateway here at Highlands to, to be involved in service in this church family in meaningful ways like that. And if you would be interested in church membership, please talk to myself or any of the other elders about your interests because we would love to have conversations with you about how you can become a partner in the gospel with us. If you aren't living as a partner in the gospel and you are a church member, how might you begin? Let's think about that together. Maybe you should, here it is, right? You knew this was coming. Maybe you should serve in nursery. <laughs> Maybe you can partner in the gospel by teaching our children a Bible lesson. I want to make this general appeal about our children's ministry, about Bible lessons. It seems in, some ch- in churches that we kind of think that people who are called to serve children do that stuff. And I would like to challenge that notion. What would it mean if we were partners together in the gospel in regards to our children? Instead of, well, those are their kids and those people teach those kids. Okay? What if we were partners in the gospel? Would you be willing to teach children three times a year? And you're like, man, I have no, I don't know idea what to do or how to do it or what I would say. And it's all right. We got you. We will train you. We have wonderful curriculum that it just, it doesn't teach itself. You do need to teach it, but it's very helpful. You would be very well equipped. But what would it mean if we looked at our children's ministry as partners in the gospel of seeing these little lives know and enjoy Jesus to serve him with their whole lives? Maybe you can serve our students, our youth. They meet on Wednesdays at 6. They meet Sunday mornings at 11.30. What if we were partners in the gospel? Maybe you can serve as a greeter or an usher or be part of the audiovisual team, being a partner in the gospel. And you might be thinking, man, that's overwhelming to me. I can't imagine being friendly at church. A greeter? Okay, I, there's room for us to grow there, maybe? Or audiovisual? That sounds so intimidating. But just think of all the things that you have done in life this far, in your career, in your life, the challenges you've accepted, the growth that you've experienced. What if we were partners in the gospel? Maybe you can start to brush up on an instrument. (laughs) 
I know all of you are like, how do we get out of the service? Or talk, maybe, maybe you need to talk about becoming a member of our music team. Okay, maybe some of you need to tattletale on those you've been sitting nearby and have heard sing, and you're like, man, that, they should be up on team. Tattletale, okay, tell on them. Talk to somebody on team and say, hey, you need to ask so-and-so because I've heard them sing and they can, they can bring it. What about us being partners in the gospel? Helping each other follow Jesus in song. Maybe you can offer space in your home to guests, to guest missionaries as they come in, bringing them meals, serving them in those ways. Maybe you can partner in the gospel by giving faithfully and generously to this church. Paul specifically addresses that action of partnership in the gospel in this, in this book, in Philippians. Maybe that means you need to set up a budget so that you can have a plan to give money away as a partner in the gospel. Every time you give to Highlands, what you're doing is you are advancing the gospel in our neighborhoods and in the nations. And I'm sure there's other ways that you could think about being a partner in the gospel, and I would love to challenge you with that. Because as I look at this church family, I see gobs of resourcefulness and intelligence and creativity and ingenuity that could be unleashed if we were to think, hmm, how can I be a partner in the gospel in that church family? What are unique ways that God has gifted me? Desires, things that make it excite me, things that I enjoy doing that I could engage and be a partner in the gospel with that church family. So remember, if you're hearing these kinds of invitations and that list of opportunities to serve in a church family, and if you hear that as an obligation, you're missing the point. And I want to make sure we really understand this because remember, Paul was full of thanksgiving and joy by remembering these people and their partnership in the gospel, which is why I want us to understand that being a partner in the gospel is actually a source of joy for you as a Christian. It is one of God's divinely intended means of giving you joy, is you being a partner in the gospel with other Christians. It means that partnership together in the gospel is one of God's ordained sources of joy for you. So, I started by asking, are you looking for joy? Well, remember the words of Christ, it is more blessed to give than to receive. God has arranged it and designed it so that our hearts explode with joy and thankfulness as we serve, as we are partners in the gospel. So, do you want some of Paul's joy? Would you like just a piece of it? Sitting in prison, abandoned in in all matter, I mean, in, in every obvious way from society around him, an outcast, and yet he is finding his heart full of thankfulness and joy as he thinks about them. Of course, we must realize this text is all about prayer, right? Verses 3 and 4. I want us to understand that this idea of partnership is couched in the context of prayer in verse 3 and 4. And the content of the prayer is talked about beginning in verse 9. And we're going to unpack that more next week, okay? So I just want, since we're in this text, I want to make sure we're faithful to the aim of this text. And so I want to just bring out this question too, is do you pray for your church family? That is another activity, another evidence, another expression of being partners in the gospel. Praying for one another as a church family. It's another source of joy, right? As you remember your church, what should you do? Pray. Pray for them. Again, it's not a rule to follow. For Paul, his prayer for these people seemed to be the spontaneous overflow of thankfulness for them. Okay? And imagine what it would be like to have that experience in this church family. What if we were all engaged in this type of partnership in the gospel so that when we thought about one another, we were full of thankfulness, which resulted in praying. So that when we gathered on a Sunday, we could honestly look each other in the eye and say, man, I prayed for you today. I prayed for you this week. 
Because I thought about you. I was so thankful for the way you are partnering with us in the gospel. And I was so excited. I wanted to pray for you that God would strengthen you in those works. That We'll look at it next week, but that you would abound more and more in love with all knowledge and discernment. What if we were engaged in that? What if that was our experience like that here? So again, if you're a to-do list kind of person, the, the answer isn't just write down a, on a task list at 9 a.m., pray for your church family. I don't know. Maybe that might be helpful. But I'm not trying to get you into like, like rule-keeping. But really, this is talking about as a lifestyle, a, a, an experience of a shared identity, of activity together as a people of God engaged in a partnership in the gospel of God. Now, there's more for us in this section. So maybe this is just kind of falling flat on your heart because you hear Paul about joy and thankfulness for this just church family, and maybe you're thinking man, I'm having a hard time finding the idea of joy and the idea of thankfulness and partnering in the work of the gospel because, frankly, Sean, church is hard and sometimes painful. Was Paul overly idealistic or naive to be so thankful and joy-filled when he thought about these Christians? I mean, maybe Paul just found, like, maybe the people in Philippi were just amazing. And you're thinking, I've not been around those kind of amazing people. For instance, do you think that if you could find a church like Philippi, then maybe you'd be willing to be a partner in the gospel and find joy and thankfulness like Paul did? Well, I'm going to challenge that notion from the text. Paul had to write this same church warnings and exhortations about things like lacking unity, selfishness, ambition, and excessive pride, which is the word conceit. And I'll prove it to you. Look at Philippians 2, verse 2. He's full of thankfulness and joy. He is so grateful for these Christians and their partnership with the gospel, and yet he writes them these instructions and these warnings. Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why does Paul write these Christians those words? Because they needed to hear them. Because his joy was not complete, because there were issues going on in the church where they were not of the same mind. They did not have the same love. They weren't in full accord and of one mind together. There was selfish ambition and conceit. There was a lack of humility in them. They were not considering each other more significant than themselves. And so he writes them these instructions and these warnings. In fact, I can prove it to you even more. Turn to chapter 4 of the same book. The church had internal conflicts that were such a big deal, something unusual in the scriptures happens. They are called, people are called out by name. Now imagine, look, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat, okay, there's this, Pleading, There's this almost exhausted please, right? Parents, you have done this with your kids. You have entreated them to be quiet, to sit still, to do, okay? What, you have entreated them. That's what Paul's doing here. I entreat, who? Yudia, and I entreat Syntyche to what? Agree in the Lord. Can you imagine being called out by name <laughs> by the Apostle Paul in the scripturated truth? So Philippians is not just all, you know, sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and butterflies. 
This was an ordinary Christian church, real people raising real families in modern-day Greco-Roman society in this Roman colony of Philippi, living out the Christian faith that was very unpatriotic because they followed Jesus as king, not Caesar. And there's all sorts of conflicts and issues going on in there. And Paul writes this church, but he starts with, man, I am so thankful for your partnership. It fills my heart with joy, and so I can't help but pray for you. And I'll just put together then, by the way, chapter 3, verse 2, the church in Philippi faced real threats to their faith. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There were people that were promoting false doctrine, and he's warning them about that. This is an average, ordinary church. The church in Philippi had and was facing its own difficulties in partnering together in the gospel. They faced internal conflict. They faced external threats. Where should they find comfort and encouragement in this? What can give a church hope and so that they don't lose heart in being partners in the gospel in such a problematic world with such problematic people? Well, the answer to that is in verse 6. Look there. He says, I am sure of this. Chapter 1, verse 6. Sorry, I know we were in different chapters there. Chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God never leaves unfinished work. Never. God never leaves unfinished work. Never. Have you ever started a project at home? Maybe it was a home improvement project or maybe painting. Um, There might be some wives or husbands jabbing each other in the ribs here now because are there still some unfinished things? Okay, I see some of you laughing. Some unfinished areas of paint, touch up, trim that needs to be put back, wall plates, okay? It's the big stuff you get done, right? You move the wall, you do all this renovation, and then it's like the last few things are just like, yeah, I'll do that next year. God never does that. God never starts a work that he will not bring it to perfect completion. Never happens. He doesn't run out of resources or time or ability. It never, he never bites off more than he can chew. It never happens. So Christians, you say, okay, that sounds cool, but how does this affect our lives together as partners in the gospel? This is how. If we would really embrace verse 6 as true, if we really believe that, verse 6, I believe it would dramatically transform our perspective and outlook on other Christians that God has called us to be partners in the gospel with. It radically transforms the way we view one another as church members, as church family, as partners in the gospel. When we have verse 6 just drumming away in our hearts and minds as we look at one another. So look around at the people sitting nearby you. Really, I mean, you can do this. Okay, look around. Okay, look at, look at, look at the people around you. Look at your husband, look at your wife, look at your kids, look at your friends, look at that person, you know, that one. If they are in Christ, be encouraged, be thankful, and find joy in the promise and assurance that God will bring his good work of salvation to completion in them. He will. It will happen in you and in me and in us. We are partners together in the gospel and God will faithfully bring to perfect completion his saving work that has made us partners in the gospel. And that gives us hope. You may say, man, you, have, you know about so-and-so? They're a mess. Do you know so-and-so? Do you know what they said? Do you know how they treated? Do you know what they did? I want verse 6 to just drum away in our hearts. 
Paul had that drumming away in his heart towards this church family in Philippians 3. In fact, as Paul wrote this letter, he admits that it hadn't happened in him yet, this full completion of God's work. He had, hadn't happened yet. You can look there in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I mean, Paul is the, the apostle writing this. He says, not that I have already obtained, chapter 3, verse 12, I have not obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Whoever Jesus has made his own, he will bring to full completion. That work will be brought to full completion. It will happen. And you say, man, I don't have confidence in them. If you talk with them, if you, maybe you're talking thinking about yourself, your own inability to, to, to apparently grow up at the, in, the, in the stature and the fullness of the measure of Christ in Ephesians. Friends, take heart. It will happen. God has promised it. He has promised it. He is at work. It will happen when? You see in verse 6, after the day of Jesus Christ. The day of, the day of days when the Apostle John, here's how the Apostle John wrote about it in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Friends, that's where we're headed. That's where we're going as a church family. We're looking forward to that. We're pursuing that goal, that aim. That's how we display God's glory. So all this put together then, it should fuel and strengthen our partnership in the gospel. When we start to lose heart or to lose faith or to lose hope in doing partnering work in the gospel as a church family, we let verse 6 drum away in our minds. God's at work. He's at work. So can you start to see how Paul's vision of and confidence in the future shaped his joy and faithful service in the present. I mean, sure, there's issues going on in the church. He calls out people by name. Stop fighting. But he's full of confidence and joy and thankfulness. Why? God's at work. God's doing a work. The hope of that future day of Christ should give us strength to endure and persevere through all the trials and tensions and disappointments that are inevitable for being partners in the gospel in a sin-cursed world. We should do the same. We must envision this church family. We must envision each other as church members on that future day of Christ and be inspired and be guided in our acts of obedient faithfulness of Christ today. So then, this means very practically that instead of rehearsing what's gone wrong or what's working against us, things like our sin and our pride and our disagreements, things that Paul wrote about in Philippians, we should remember who we are, partners in the gospel. We should remember that bright vision of our shared future together, the day of Christ. Now, most of the time we can't see it, right? We can't see God's work happening, can we? I mean, how, how have you seen God change you since yesterday, since last week? Some of you maybe can. This is the kind of thing that you don't see until you look back over a longer period of time. It's kind of like raising kids. You know, you're raising them and it's like, man, are we doing anything right? Are they doing it? And then over time, over years, by God's grace, you start to see glimmers of how oh, things are starting to things are starting to fall into place. Now, at this point, I want to go on the record that what Paul writes here about the Philippians resonates in my own heart toward you, toward this church family. In this way, when I think of you, I am thankful. When I think of you, I am, I am. I'm joy-filled. You are a source of joy to me as a member of your elder team. 
And I could say this, I'm I'm speaking now for the other elders, but I, I see evidence of this in the elder team. That when this elder team is praying for you, when we discuss you as a church membership, we are thankful. And, it is a, and you are a source of joy. And I just want to brag on you for a little bit. I'm bragging on God at work in you, okay? But over the last couple of months in particular, we've been so encouraged to hear you talk about and to watch you get busy as partners in the gospel. And for example, we did trunk or treat together. That's an example of partnering in the gospel, right? We wanted to serve our community simply to engage our community so they would know that we love them, we care for them, we want to serve them. We've got some more wonderful opportunities to partner in the gospel as we seek to engage our community this Christmas season. We're doing food donations for Meals on Wheels. And even better, we're going to be writing cards that are going to be delivered to uh, those, those recipients. We've got 100 cards that we want to be writing. Our own personal message of the reason for the season, our hope in Christ, the love and joy and peace that's found only in Christ. We want to write a hundred of those cards so they can be scattered through our community and be delivered from us. We can be partners in the gospel. So take some cards home. We want to write a hundred of them. You probably have to write more than one. (laughs) Another opportunity that we have to partner in the gospel is our gift wrap event. Friends, I have no idea if it's going to be successful or not. In fact, well, is this bad of me to say? I don't know how many people would show up to this gift wrap event. I think it's probably one of those things that won't, won't seem to have real... Of, I don't know. I'd love to be proved wrong. I'm sorry if I'm like making you all feel grumpy about this. I think this is the kind of thing, I'll just say what I'm, what's in my mind, that over time, in enough years, when we are consistent in serving our community, word will spread and our community will know more and more, oh, those people, they love us. They want to serve us. In addition to the other ways I've already mentioned about serving in practical ways here in our church family, we have these other ways that we are aiming as a church family to partner in the gospel together. Food donations, cars being written to encourage and to spread the good news of Jesus, being involved in the gift wrap, just serving through those types of efforts. So here's my invitation. Would you join us? Not as an obligation, not as a task list, not as a thing you got to check off just to make yourself not feel guilty, but honestly, as a partner in the gospel. So, finishing this all up. Do you see now why Paul is so full of joy and thankfulness when he thinks of these Christians? Friends, that's the same kind of work that God is doing here and wants to do more and more of here. How might God be using this text in his word to further complete his good work in you? Do you need to become an active partner in the gospel at Highlands? This Christmas season is a great place to start. Talk to us about it. Is God challenging you to give financially as a partner in the gospel? Maybe you've become impatient or disillusioned with your own spiritual progress or with the seemingly slow spiritual progress of those around you in your church family. Would you let Philippians 1, 6 give you hope, a God-centered hope? 